an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 810. Now let's go to the Nerdist Community Court Board. Christina Carroll writes, I thought the community might be interested in, in an historic show coming up at the Society of Illustrators in New York City this June. It's called Point of Vision and celebrates women illustrators in the science fiction and fantasy genres. The show is curated by award-winning art directors Irene Gallo uh, and Lauren Panapinto. Uh, it's Tor Books and Orbit Books, respectfully. Uh, there's going to be tons of beautiful original art on display, and many artists will be in attendance for the opening. The show runs from June 8th to August 20th, and the opening reception is on June 10th. Uh, all the info can be found. This is a tiny URL. Go to tiny.cc slash society illustrators. Uh, thank you, Christina Carroll. Also, Ronnie Mairns Dio writes, Hello, I'm a skater with Chicago Outfit Roller Derby in Chicago, uh, and I thought it'd be appropriate to mention this on the Nerdist Community Court Board. They have several players named after Nerdist Friendly Topics. <laughs> Treble Alliance, uh, Antimatter, uh, Kilojoules, Maven Darkholm, and even NSO, non-skating official, named Buenos Tardis. Uh, we hold home bouts during the summertime in Chicago, uh, generally once a month on Saturday nights. We'd love to recruit some new roller derby fans to the games. Upcoming dates are June 18th and July 30th at the Windy City Fieldhouse at 2367 West Logan Boulevard. Doors at 6, first game's at 7, uh, and you can buy reduced price tickets ahead of time or pay at the door. Find out more info at ChicagoOutfitRollerDerby.com This episode is Chuck Lorre and Mayim Bialik. Uh, They're promoting Big Bang Theory Thursday nights at 8pm on CBS. Uh, who are two incredibly smart people. Mayim Bialik is rad. She's uh, just ridiculously smart. She's smarter than you. But not in a way that makes you feel bad about yourself. You're just like, oh, you're smart, and I, wanna, I want you to tell me things so I can learn stuff. And uh, Chuck is, I mean, the guy is one of the most uh, prolific producers in television. Uh, so it was really, really great to sit down and chat with them in the, in the new podcast room, although it's not as new anymore, but uh, still, still fresh. It's called the Fresh Podcast Room. Uh, but anyway, I'd like to thank them for coming on and uh, giving us time. The Nerdist Podcast, episode number 810, with Chuck Laurie and Mayim Bialik. Now entering Nerdist.com. Like he heard me. Like he heard me. What's going on, Ben? Nice to see you too. Hey, nice Hi, to see you. Nice to see you too. This is our kind of this is our new podcast room. 
Do you feel comfortable or do you feel weirdly squished up next to the table? I'll just do it from like, Tell me your name. like an match where you just see me in your peripheral vision. Like the plot of It Follows. How are you, Chris? Matt, how are you? Uh, Why are you asking me? Maya and Chuck are here. We've already talked for a while. Okay. We already got the pleasantries. We're good. You're all you guys are all square then. We are we're fine. So you have nothing else to offer this conversation at this point. Okay. Good. Well you sit there. Yep. Um I just did a thing for Neil deGrasse Tyson. And it was his show, and we kept throwing the clips of it. It was all built around his conversation with you. Oh. Which was great. We had a really good time. <laughs> I could say a lot of things. I mean, he's, you know, he's amazing in and of himself. But obviously, you know, as a public person, which I am and which he is, who tries to put a positive face on, like, all things science and physics, it was really awesome to be in a room with him. I mean, it's... Meeting educators who actually can convey these, you know, these big ticket items to people in conversational ways, there's so much incredible value in it. And his show, his show is really fun. He shoots it at the, um, I was in New York and he shoots it at the, at the Hayden Planetarium. Yeah. And you just throw to clips and there's like, you know, a hundred people there just sipping wine and talking about physics. It's very fancy and upscale well, and think, academic. I think a lot of it is about the palatability, you know, of of science, you know. How how approachable can you make it? How much can you have people drinking wine while talking about it? And he's really achieved that so well. Do you ever get do you ever feel weird when people are like, you you're but you're an actor and you have you studied neuroscience like and you're a woman i mean it's just like they do do you ever feel weird like do you ever find yourself in those interviews or you're like "Eh, calm down you know yeah i mean well honestly i do get that a lot about like and you're female and you have children who would say and you're female who would say that plenty of people there's a lot of things about me i've been told that don't often you know fit into one neat box or another and that's okay i'm okay with it you need to tell people to open their fucking minds. I, <laughs> I don't use that F-bomb when I oh, say Oh, I'm sorry. That, yeah. I apologize. I mean, I can use that F-bomb. Sure. But yeah, I usually just say, open your friggin' mind. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you need to step it up. Well, maybe, Come to the maybe dark side. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, Chuck Lorre. Uh, I, I moderated your Big Bang panel like yeah, we five years ago, and it was earlier. really fun. It was great. But it was <clears throat> see, that, that moment where uh, someone said something about Doctor Who and what, I can't remember who it was on the panel was like, oh, I don't watch Doctor Who. And the crowd was like, oh, and I'm like, They're, give them a fucking break. They're per- actors. Like, they don't have to know everything about everything all the time. It does put the guys on the, on the, on the cast on the spot a lot. Yeah. The, the, intent, the, the desire for them to be like the characters. Yeah. Um, they seem to be okay with it. Everybody seems yeah. okay with the fact we're well, not these Because I'm these there as everyone's punching bag. Like, if you have a D&D question, take it to Mayim. If you have a superhero <laughs> question, take it to Mayim. Yeah, I think that's generally kind of what it feels like. If you have a neuroscience question, take it to Mayim. If you have a, question, question, it. Yeah. No, but I think you have a, a pop of... culture question, take it to the writers. That's <laughs> right. That's all. They, they, you know, that's, 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 and that makes perfect sense. But you, you said something really interesting that it always stuck out with me on that panel where I said, you know, you've successfully made a show about – nerds and you go no i've made a show about people in relationships it's not it's actually not that's just like a filter it's not that but it's still just about people i I think in the beginning anyway it was the intent was to do a show about really really smart people who have trouble navigating life yeah and the the nerd geek labels came later i didn't really anticipate that oddly enough is that how you pitched the show 
we pitch the show as, uh, you know, physicists, uh, you know, uh, string theory, quantum mechanics, kind of beautiful minds without the paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> um, and, it's coming uh, next season. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, the idea that these these guys and then later the ladies that we introduced were extraordinary minds that that struggled with uh, with the mundane and that was the premise of the show not not that they were nerds or geeks or anything like that and um, but that actually that stuck <laughs> so, yeah. I mean it is it's interesting to see like you know some people are like oh my god the show is I, I, I completely sympathize – I empathize with a lot of these characters. But then there's other people in the nerd community who are like, that's not how we are. You know, like it is interesting to see what the dividing line is. I think yeah. inherently them complaining, that's not how we are, is how they are. <laughs> yeah. So you, you think that – The show upsetting you is, is its own <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's condemnation. It's really – I just think it's really – I think it's really interesting and as a as – a, um, as as a, someone who has to lead all these shows, that there's such this interestingly um, disparate offering of characters on on all of your different shows. Like, how do you manage those rooms? Like, how do you come in and sort of okay, this is appropriate for this room, and this is appropriate for this show over here because it's a totally different kind of show, all at the same time. Uh, the secret is uh, inefficiency. <laughs> Uh, I thought you were going to say the secret is it's all Dharma and Greg with different names. <laughs> no, the, the secret is collaboration, really. I mean, on each show, there's a, a staff that's that show and um, and dedicated and, and, you know, eating, sleeping, drinking that show. And um, you can't, you know, it's, it, you can't. It, TV doesn't doesn't resolve itself to a one-man show. It's ridiculous. It wouldn't happen. I think it's interesting that both of you... What's great about both of you being here is that you both have multiple careers and multiple successful careers. And it's not... You're both not just defined by one thing because I know you're a musician mm -hmm. and you study... You're studying, you're studying neuroscience and, and you... Are you actively working... Are you actively sciencing during during the shoot season? No. I I got my doctorate in 2007, and I taught for about five years in the homeschool community for junior high and high school. I taught neuroscience and biology and chemistry, and I had a toddler and an infant when I started auditioning for things again. Um, I, I had heard of the Big Bang Theory because I heard that I was mentioned, and I thought it must be like a quiz show, like <laughs> that girl from Blossom, you know, is a neuroscientist. So I didn't know what it was. I mean, you know, and once I, you know, once I auditioned, I was still teaching for the first year or mm -hmm. so of working on Big Bang Theory. I was still teaching. Um, and then when I was made a regular in season four, my full time life became playing a scientist on TV. I do a lot of outside advocacy for STEM, you know, right. for, um, and I, I have a website called Grok Nation, and we're starting to do video production for a YouTube channel to try and kind of get more into the science educating, you know, kind of environment. Um, but yeah, my full-time job, I mean, sitcom is a great schedule, but there's not time to also be studying psychoneuroendocrinology. <laughs> well, maybe you're just not trying hard enough. Maybe you don't want it that bad. Ted right. Danson did it. Right. I'm, yeah. <laughs> when he was playing Sam Malone, he wrote three pieces of papers. 
on unified on a unified field theory. <laughs> It'd be amazing if all of a sudden you found out like Ted Danson had this like mountain of <laughs> physics work that he didn't want anyone to know but about. But most of it was from the Becker years. Yeah, it was all from Becker. Yeah, he wrote it all during Becker. But uh, I, I think that because our culture, I feel like people are being asked to process so much information at all times that it's easy for people to put other people in boxes and go, well, you must do this and you must do this because that, that is how I must sort my brain. Um, so what do you, how, how do you kind of reconcile that? Do you just ignore it or do you just, you know, do you have a stock answer when, when, when you're hit with the, those obvious questions? No, I mean, I think, I think people can be all sorts of things. And I think, you know, um, you know, I'm also I'm trained as a musician myself. Like there's a lot of different parts of everybody. And to me, that adds to all of our creativity. You know, Jim is a musician. Simon's a musician. Just, you know, everybody has different other parts of them that add to who they are. And I think for me, you know, when I'm asked about what it's like to be an actor and take someone else's words and make them real, it's every life experience you've had leading up to that moment that makes you able to do that as an actor, you know? So to me, these are just all of our kind of collective experiences that pool together and make, you know, make us who we are. That's true. But not everyone, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of different interests. Most people have a lot of different interests. Sure. Not everyone is able to get a PhD and be on, you know, right. and be a successful performer at the same time. And right. also have children and also right. be able to perform music and create advocacy for right. science. So how do you manage your time? So, um, well, my assistant Todd's over there because it's important to have someone who actually helps you. Are you Todd? Things. That's Todd. Yeah. Todd. I leaned over Todd very closely <laughs> you when did. you came in. Um, you know, honestly, like when, when I'm asked, and I do a lot of public speaking. I speak to a lot of young people. Um, I don't watch a lot of television and I don't have a very active social life. And those are, those are not things I'm particularly proud of. And when I was younger, that always made me really on the outs, you know, in, in junior high and high school. Um, I was always that person. But the fact is I get a lot more done um, if I don't plug in every night for, you know, three or four hours to something. And if I'm not out, you know, having a good time. I, get a lot, I, get, I mean, I have a good time in my life, but my idea of fun is different from a lot of people's idea of fun. And that's just, you know, kind of who I am. So, um, you know, there's not a magic secret. You know, I don't have a I don't have a nanny. I don't have a housekeeper. Like I take care of my own life and I raise my kids and 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 that's sort of how I work but in terms of how everything gets done um you know it's time management with the help of good people and I have a really good team around me I've got a a really strong group of uh mainly women but a couple men um who think like I do and work like I do and that helps you know we we get work done I don't have lazy mornings sleeping in that's just not my lifestyle I get up and I get life done before my kids get up and I stay up late, and sometimes I watch, you know, a show or go to the movies. <laughs> I promise I'm a really good time, but <laughs> yeah. I like that you're pitching, like, it's it's really, like, no, you hang out with me, I can be really fun. <laughs> I can be really fun sometimes. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah. Uh, what about you? How do you manage your time? Do you, do you, does, do you do anything that starts to, if anything starts to feel too much like work, is it still a hobby to you, or do you like to keep some things not work related like music i guess uh yeah music is probably the the one thing that i, I keep that uh it allows me to <clears throat> just use a different part of the brain and uh it doesn't require 150 people to put on a show you know <laughs> you just go home and turn on the blues channel on uh on uh on uh satellite radio and play along <laughs> and, and a couple hours will go by but would you ever tour live i've performed live occasionally around town you know, sit in with guys. Do you like it? 
I love it. It's what I did for almost 20 years before television. That's, I mean, that, that is pretty my, amazing. That was my job. And uh, I did it all over the country. I did it in Alaska, and I did it in the Caribbean, and all, kind of a lot of places in between. And so what kind of made you decide to pursue something as ridiculously structured and, and vile as television? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, um, the motivation was children. I had two small children, and uh, there wasn't enough protein on the table. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, there's, there's no hope of being uh, Lennon, McCartney, Dylan, Hendrix, Clapton, or anybody else, so maybe I can be Gary Marshall. <laughs> so, you know, I actually... That's the next logical step. <laughs> really Chuck is. is directing Father's Day in <laughs> theaters. Uh, yeah, no, no. Ar- Arbor Day. Arbor Day. Arbor Day. Arbor Day. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, Passover. Uh, um, Pour on the just, musical. I, it was, I was, look, I was, when I was a musician, I was... Uh, I was enamored with, uh, I was enamored with rock and roll growing up in the '60s. But I was also I uh, became completely uh, amazed and infatuated with Randy Newman, and I I thought that's what I want to do. I want to write songs like that with a point of view, where he would have a strange point of view. He would have a he would have a you know, kind of an obnoxious point of view, and it was hilarious. And uh, and uh, there wasn't much call for that. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I was writing songs like that. And, Did you ever release any of them? <clears throat> Would you? Um, no, they were terrible. <laughs> They're pretty much terrible. I one song uh, over a period of about fifteen years. I, I had one song that uh, Debbie Harry covered called "French Kissing in the USA." Oh yeah. Oh, you wrote that? Yeah. I know that song. You know that song? That was kind of a that was kind of a hit on MTV yeah, for a while. Kind of, yeah, French Kissing yeah, in the USA. Yeah. I remember the song. Yeah, that was it. And uh, and um, and um, I just think I just remember thinking uh, I. This, I, these, these children still require food. <laughs> <laughs> they require food. They insist on going to the dentist. And, uh, and she, they insist. <laughs> Dad, we must go to the dentist. No, no, no. It, I it, insist. It really hurts. <laughs> I, am, oh, I must man up. Sir. <laughs> you know, you know uh, a TV seemed like a much more reliable way of taking care. Which is really this. odd to hear because it's a TV. I mean, yes, in its perfect form, it is very reliable. And, it, you know, if, if you... If, but it, to getting to that point, well, coming is, from music, it seemed as stable as can be. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the music industry was it was exciting to be even part of the fringe of it, but it was not something I could count on. And frankly, I, I, looking back, I just didn't have the chops. I mean, yeah. I saw I saw some people who did. Uh, I got near a couple of people that had the kind of chops that went on to do extraordinary things, and you could tell. You know, you could tell that guy's hearing something I'm not. And it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you didn't give it up. You just pursued another thing yeah, while you were still doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I stumbled into the Turtles, too. You did. You know you yeah. wrote the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, I do. Which, yeah. uh, which is, it was the great source of pride for my then young children. Because, <laughs> oh, finally he's done something. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, a pretty big deal. It's in, in season two of Kimmy Schmidt, there's... That that joke. Oh, I somebody sent yeah. me that clip. That's weird. She's, she's like, there, Kimmy. You know, she's in a bunker. That's the premise of the show. She comes out. Yeah. And now she's living life, and she's like trying to reference things that kids might like nowadays. And she goes, "Pogs," and they're like, "No." Blah blah blah. She goes, "Ninja Turtles," and she goes, "Yeah, that's a thing." And she goes, "How is that still a thing?" And then she comes into the house. <laughs> singing that song and she goes that's a really catchy song whoever wrote that should be a billionaire she walks by <laughs> she walks by a, a giant framed poster that says Chuck Lorre wrote that song that's amazing <laughs> it's pretty weird right it's like <laughs> such a writer's room joke that they just let go in there well, must be nice <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> 
But it is, it's also kind of a crazy life thing. It's like I saw an interview with you where you explained the whole process. And you're like, we had no time. We had to, we had $2,000 and we had to record it in the studio. Journey was recording an album <laughs> from like midnight to eight. Mm-hmm. And then that thing became something that will outlive all of us, you know, that one little unexpected nugget. Who knew? I mean, the, the Turtles, Flo and Eddie, were supposed to do the theme song. Oh wow! Mm. Uh, they, you know that they make sense. I suppose. And from what little I understand, the producer of those first few episodes and the initial order, I think, was for six. Oh, they wow. had no nobody knew. They did. They ordered six episodes to see what would happen. And uh, and from what I remember, the guy called me, uh, Fred Wolf, wonderful guy, and he said, um, "I'm kind of stuck. They they never delivered. <laughs> they just they just blew." You mean it off. the band of the Turtles <laughs> from they, the they, 60s? Wow. They blew it off. They just never delivered. And we have like we need a theme song, and we need to score these six episodes in a in a week or something. A couple of weeks. Can you still interested? And I said, "Yeah," because I still wanted music to be part of my life. So. He gave us $2,500 to do a demo, and that demo was the master recording for like 10 years. <laughs> and, and the little vo- the voices, you know, the, you know, that's a fact, Jack, and all yeah. those little voices, that was me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, I, I re- and we just VSO'd it. We sped it up so that it would sound like a cartoon voice. And I remember saying to him, you're going to want the actors, the actual actors, to put their voices on this. He goes, it's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's fine. No one's going to know. So you're, you're responsible for the phrase Michelangelo is a party dude? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which rhymes, as you remember, with rude. rude. Yeah. Right. Raphael. Right. As we all. Cool but rude. Damn it. We, we need somebody who express that he enjoys going to parties all the time. And he's, and he's a dude. And he's also, he doesn't have manners. I don't know where we're supposed to. Did they outline it for you and go, here are the turtles and here's, their, here's generally what they do? We had... Uh, we might have had uh, the first episode, uh-huh. you know, a rough cut of the first episode, and we had a half a dozen of the original comics, which were black and white yeah. comics. They yeah. were garage printed comics. It was a dark kind, like it was an underground. It was an underground comic, and uh, nobody nobody knew anything about what this was going to be. I mean, it was completely blind, and um, and then they they, they they ordered six more, and then they ordered seven more, and then, <laughs> and then they they one sixty five. <laughs> you, know? you know, and Dennis Brown, Dennis Brown, and I, who who wrote the song and and and, and were doing the scoring, we were like, I, I think I, I think I think we've something's happening here. <laughs> and then CBS put it on CBS, in addition to the stuff that was being made for syndication. Oh my god! And uh, and then there was the Nintendo games. Oh yeah. You know, which is really funny. Uh, it's not funny. It wasn't funny then. Um, Dennis and I were called into an office, I think in Century City. At some point, this thing had become a phenomenon. And uh, the video games were everywhere and, and arcade games and video cassettes. And we were ushered into a room with a bunch of lawyers who said, um, we're not going to be paying you for the arcade games, video cassettes, and Nintendo games for the music. Um, and if you want to make a deal out of it, we're just going to strip your music off of everything. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, well, Why? Are you not going to pay us? And he went, you know, we don't want to. <laughs> 
behind that. And we, we signed away our rights to all that stuff. Because you had, no, they basically, like, <laughs> we didn't have a lawyer. We were just two idiots sitting there, two guitar <laughs> players sitting there going, oh, okay. Um, well, you can leave the songs, the stuff's going to stay on the TV show. Okay. Oh, my don't, God. Don't that's know. crazy. It was, it was hilarious. Wow. I mean, that's, that sounds like if you saw that in, like, a bad 80s movie and some guy was like, we're just not going to pay you. Like, and no, we're tearing down no, the no, youth center. Got, no, you're, now you're doing the voices <laughs> with a great deal of hostility. It was quite gentlemanly. Okay. Uh, we really don't want to pay you. We just don't uh, feel we just like don't it. Really, it's too much money. Also, we're, uh, <laughs> we're tearing down the youth center. Yeah, yeah it, it was very calm. <laughs> Unless you can you stage know, a breakdance competition. You know, and uh, and uh, so, but we were just thrilled to stay part of it. Yeah. I mean, the bummer part about that is that they really couldn't. They they were making shit tons of money. Like there was no reason to not go. Well, let's just give these guys. It'll be a fraction of what we're let's, making. Let's steal a lot and then give them something. Did no. that teach you anything about how you... Bring a lawyer. <laughs> Bring a lawyer. <laughs> Do don't, right? don't show up. But, don't, don't show up with a good attitude. But, Bring a lawyer. But when you kind of became part... When you became the, you know, when you became the guy on the other side of the table, you know, did that change how you deal with people? Well, it just, you know, I, I, I'm not in the business dealings of what I do. I'm not. I'm, when negotiations are going on, I'm not in that room. But... It, it's easier to just play fair. Yeah, it's just easier. It's just it's less stress and 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 strain for everybody. So, um, but um, do you write the themes to your shows? I co-wrote the theme to Two and a Half Men. Nice, but I didn't know you that. know, but when when it came time to do the the, the Big Bang theme, we got an opportunity to work with uh, Ed Robertson and and uh, and the Bare Naked Ladies. And uh, again, they were going to do a much better job, and they did. <laughs> You know, it was clear, you know, get the guys who do it well. I was enjoying your slot machine this weekend at the... Oh, Asia. yeah, you saw the, the slot giant machine? It's one. Just hard With to... Three I, did, you, did you understand it? It's ridiculous. You bet on a penny slot, you bet $6, and then you have three, four games going at the same time, and then you hit a bonus, and then it's one of the wheels, and then there's another wheel. It's, do you, ha you have to actually be... It's so good, you have to be a physicist to understand <laughs> yeah. how the slot machine works. It didn't stop me wrong. from sinking some money into it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank Enjoy you. Enjoy that. I felt bad Thank about you. the turtle thing. <laughs> He's like, giving back. Don't here, feel Jeff. bad about it. Very grateful about Chuck the turtle. Chuck really got screwed on the turtle thing. Let's give him some money yeah, back. Yeah, 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 everybody sure. feels bad for Chuck. I mean, this, this, this kind of this era of, like, let's put just recognizable things onto a slot machine is kind of genius. I... Love it. <laughs> it does. I love the fact that you play slot machines. Oh, God. I mean, just Ridiculous why don't you just amount. set your wallet on fire? Uh, he fun. doesn't care. Matt uh, will drive fun. to Vegas for like four hours, play a bunch of slots, and then drive home. He just doesn't care. The, my, my wife and I went this weekend. He'll, he, like, he, he was hunting down the Cheers slot machine for oh, a while, and then so that long. went extinct. And he it's gone. No you longer get, in Las Vegas. You, I can't find it. You, you get the reason why those buildings are so tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's because you know. Uh, maybe you didn't know. Every time I lose <laughs> at a table game, I say, this is for Sheldon Allison. <laughs> and then I push it across the table. <laughs> the dealers laugh. <laughs> I just think that uh, uh, it's such a crazy – I mean, even back then, I, I feel like the business was still trying to understand what IP meant and how to manage all of it and – now it just feels it just feels crazy because that deal that you had to go in where they told you that they would have made that that today they would make all of that up front and any idea that you would have had during yeah, the production it was of much that more thing, casual everything was you know there was you, there were still handshake deals back then a lot of Michelangelo's running around you know yeah, <laughs> so it, it, yeah it was you know it, it was the beginning of the corporatization of all this stuff too those big corporations were coming in all this stuff then so what, at what point did you 
when you kind of made the decision, like, I'm going to go into television, did you just write a script that weekend? Or what did you, what did you, what did you do? <laughs> I, I think uh, my, my big break uh, came uh, – I knew a guy who lived next door to Betty White. <laughs> the Chuck Lorre story. Yes. <laughs> Page one. Starting Page way one. too at the beginning. And I thought, well, he lives next door to Betty White. I like the Golden Girls. I thought it was a brilliant show. That show holds up, by it's, the way. It's a great sure. show. You, know, you got Val, you got Val- Su- Su- in there. You had uh, Mitch, Mitch and Mark Cherry. Susan Harris Susan was Harris. A Susan Harris. genius. And, and it was a brilliantly written and, and cast and produced show. So I, I love this show. He lives next door to Betty White. I'll write an episode <laughs> featuring Betty White. He'll give it to her. And my career will begin. Yep. And your children will go to the dentist. And my children will actually get braces. <laughs> they'll finally yes. get braces yeah. and they'll finally get some food. And, uh, and, 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 but first he had to like the script. And he, he did. And, and, uh, and he, he did give it to Betty. And she sent me a handwritten note. It was a remarkable experience saying that she loved the script. She was bringing it to the producers. And I thought, well, that's it. Holy I, I'm on my way. My career has begun. You know, protein for everybody. <laughs> protein and braces. <laughs> a few you weeks. get salmon. You get pork. <laughs> everybody. What do you want? Don't what do you want? Protein, kids. What do you want? No more carbohydrates. Let's go. Um, and then a few weeks later, I got a, I got the script came back in the mail with a form letter from uh, with Thomas saying it was not up to our standards. Thank you very much for your submission. <laughs> and I have to think I didn't know at the time what the looks on the producers' faces must have been. <laughs> As Ms. White came in and put the script on the desk and said, my neighbor gave me this. I think it's pretty good. We should do it. The, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing it didn't come in ashes in a bag, <laughs> that they didn't set it on fire. But uh, What was the script about? It was actually it was taken a, a, a story from my life, how my mother responded to my father's passing and, 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 and what happened and how she emotionally responded to his passing. And Betty White's character coming to grips with how she had not really processed his his death, and uh, I, you know it was, uh, it was it was meaningful to me. So I, you know I, I think you know for a first time writer it was uh, it got me it did get me work not, at the, Golden, the, not at the Golden Girls. Did you have the nightgown cheesecake scene in there? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> well, that's why it didn't go. There that's why they didn't take it. We could try again. Yeah. But it, you know it did get. But me then Sophia's right. got to come in and say something saucy. And well, then... sometimes Sophia starts the cheesecake. She does. Yeah, it's still funny. I fucking love that show. But I think it's a lot of first time writers don't necessarily. I think it's a good. I still think it was a successful attempt on your part because a lot of first-time writers will lead with jokes over story. Yeah. So they'll try to... Because I've, I've heard that uh, one of the most common spec scripts is a Simpsons script, and it's also the impossible one to spec because mm-hmm. they always just do the same one-dimensional jokes from all the characters, and they don't focus mm-hmm. enough on the story. So what was I, it that made I, you go, I need this to be a good story? I, I, I wanted to write something that I that I could get my teeth into, that, melt, that something that meant something to me, you know, and... Um, and I got a handwritten note from Betty White. So I won. did. You keep it? Oh yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh yeah. No, it was. It was. You know, I. It actually encouraged me, even though the script was rejected. It encouraged me to keep trying. And so you handle? Do you handle rejection pretty well? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, not at all. It hurts. Okay, good. You, you understand how? Of that course, works, right? Yeah. No, I do. Ow. But you know, you don't. But think, some people respond to that by going, "Well, I'm never going to do this thing again because it hurts." And other people go, "Well, this hurts, but I'm going to figure out how to make it not hurt." Oh no, you you know you 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 you. Uh, it's what is the what's the uh, the cliche? It's not how many times you fall down; it's right. how many times you get up. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, fall down nine times, get up ten. Get up ten. And I, I honestly oh, believe I that, that that's a, that's a, that's a, that's that's actually an e- again. It goes back to the. It's easier to do when there's people relying on you to you know pay the rent. Yeah. You know if you know if it was just me, I'm a guitar player now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm leaving here to go play a bar mitzvah at the Sportsman's Lodge. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really great. <laughs> that's, that's what would be right play my now. wedding. You, you'll yeah. play my wedding. Yeah. Chuck uh, Lurie on the stream. So, you know, those, you know it, it changes your perspective when, you, when you're a parent. Um, from that experience, did you start specking other shows or did mm-hmm. you – you did? Yeah. And, but that actually – that Golden Girl script got me work on other shows and, um, and I crawled in. Crawled into the business. How Actually, long? I was in the business for six months just before the writer's strike. Oh, the yeah, first, yeah. The oh perfect time. Yep. You know, you know. Oh boy, we're making some money now. Whoops! <laughs> oh, I can get a free sandwich at Cantor's. <laughs> show my card. Kids, get in the car. We're gonna get some protein, protein at Cantor's. At Cantor's. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Put that down. <laughs> the Cantor's. You guys don't do dental work too, by any chance? Do you guys do dental well, work? Well, we got a guy. Back? <laughs> we got a guy in the back. You'll love him. But it's uh, but this idea of um, uh, even switching because at this point you're in your 30s, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and you, you're embarking on this entirely new career. Yeah. Um, I, I actually I wrote. I didn't even know what door was going to open, so I wrote a spec Miami Vice. <laughs> I was going to guess Magnum. You need but to publish I wrote a, these. I wrote this has a to be your Miami next Vice, coffee table book, which got me a meeting in Miami Vice, and uh, it was called um, Miami Vice and the Collins Avenue Kid, <laughs> and uh, it was about uh, two old Jewish retirees who find a bag of cocaine on the beach, a big bag of cocaine on the beach, decide to go into business. And uh, this again about your mother. And uh, yes, and, uh, and, and 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 the cops and the bad guys are chasing them through the whole thing. And I had this idea that Art Carney and you know and Mathau would be the two guys. Oh. I had it all planned out in my head. And I got a meeting with uh, the Miami Vice producers out of that script, and they said, "It's uh, you got to take out all the jokes." And I went, "Oh, why can't you do a funny one? <laughs> one time, went, do one funny one." You know, it was, yeah. you know that day I didn't have a second meeting. They didn't, so you wait. So <laughs> I didn't get go- called back. So wait, your Golden Girls spec script was about Adam. Somebody died in the Miami Vice script too. <laughs> okay, good. one of the guys died too. It was it was a heartbreaking scene in the third. <laughs> the yeah, yeah. Actually I don't know what husband. to do with all this cocaine. <laughs> oh no no no! I had my to heart. And the Golden Girl script had a seance in the second act. I'm no idiot. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Wait, hang on a second. Did everything you write take place in Miami? Huh? Golden, no, no, no. Golden well, Girls in Miami. Miami. Yeah, yeah. But Miami Vice, the first year, the Michael Mann couple of years were great. Oh, they were. It was a, it was a yeah, pilot. breakout show. That pilot's amazing. You yeah. missed a really amazing opportunity to do the uh, long-awaited Golden Girls Miami Vice crossover. Boy, wouldn't where, that have been uh, well, they Colonel kind of, runs through the Golden Girls house and Crockett and Tubbs they kind stay of, for dinner. They kind of accomplished that with the drug dealer that moves in next door. It's the episode of Golden Girls that George Clooney is in. And George Clooney gets shot in the episode. And they all go visit him at the hospital. Oh my, I don't That's know. That's a real episode of Golden Girls. Oh, another one of those. Uh, was it a very special episode? Of no, Golden it wasn't Girls? that special. George Clooney. Before George or after Facts of Life? Before? Got it was shot after Facts of Life. Post Packs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is. That's well, a, you know a lot of stuff. You I do. Unfortunately. I watched a lot. Of, I did the opposite of mine growing up. I just watched television. No, I watched when I was. No, growing up, I watched oh, okay. all that stuff. I think. Uh, because when Paul Feig was on, he talked about the ALF script that he wrote that never got produced. So it kind of makes me think we should go to successful showrunners and do well, readings of that's the really script. Cole, Cole and I are talking about putting on uh, at Sketchfest next year 
uh, getting spec scripts like the one Chuck has Wow, shoot big. Done. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and staging live readings of them with, with really good people that are up there. We should do that. Yeah. No, Sketchfest is good. It's like the biggest comedy fe- independent comedy festival in the United States. And, and Poo-poo every- it all you want. Yeah, don't, Chuck. Don't say poo-poo to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think it would be really great to it'd be really great to line up a bunch of people and yeah. and just get all their was there was there one that you are surprised never got made? Is there one that you're particularly proud of? I, those you know I actually remember when they brought back the Twilight Zone in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, the new Twilight Zone. I wrote Zone. one of those too. I figured which one? It, it didn't get made. Oh uh, <laughs> no! In a stunning. I, it was. It was basically. Twist. It was basically the first door that opens. <laughs> I'm going in. Yeah, and that was my master plan. The first door that opens. Yeah, I'm going in, and I'm not playing any more weddings in Tarzana. And uh, now you just do that for fun, and just for fun, yeah. just show up. It's you know, and uh, you get the free dinner and stuff. Um, but, free uh, protein, and, uh, <laughs> kids. But then, how long were you writing before the you know the untitled Chuck Lorre project? You know, it's like, oh well, you've been writing long enough. Maybe it's time for you to kind of run your own thing. After two years on Roseanne, um, Marcy Carcy and Tom Warner came to me and said, "We want you to write a pilot." And I was like, "Well, yes." I mean, they were the most powerful company in town at the time in comedy um so i whatever you want i'll write anything i'll write about the phone book anything you want was it what was the what was it like navigating all the stuff that was going on on that show that was not just the show i didn't have to navigate it because i wasn't i wasn't running that show i was you know i was a just writing i was a lieutenant so uh the main job was to keep your head down yeah you know it was volatile Holy Let's shit. call it volatile. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just stick with that word. But it was, you know, it was a good learning environment. I mean, it was boot camp. You learned, you learned, or you, you know, you got shot out of a cannon. Was the room kind of a was Was there an air of fear in the room? No, I, my friend Bob Meyer ran the room the two years I was there, and and he ran a great room. He actually taught me most of what I know about running a room, which is like collaboration. I mean, he had his ears were open to anything, and. And he wasn't he wasn't running the show out of ego and of a need for himself to get his own words on the page. He just wanted the best words on the, the funniest page. stuff, yeah. The best stuff and he didn't really care who said it. Yeah. And and we would yell and scream and argue and he'd sit patiently and let it happen. You know, and out of that cauldron came better material and I and we'd write first drafts and bring in the first drafts to the room and the room would just tear them to shreds. And and the obvious thing that I, I I didn't like it, but I couldn't uh, avoid recognizing that my scripts got better, way better, a hundred times better as a result of being subjected to that process. I wanted my first drafts to be flawless, but they weren't even close. Right. So the room really was a magic part of making those scripts work, and he created a room that, that did that. There is a – there really is a chemistry – it's such a precise chemistry to balancing a good writer's room mm-hmm. and trying to figure out like how to have, oh, these people need to compliment these people and then this person is a really strong joke writer but then this person's good with story. And then having a, a, a head writer that the other writers actually respect and will listen to. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. <laughs> but it's not, it's not an easy – it's not easy to, to, to manufacture that. But you recognize that certain people have certain strengths. Yeah. And um, and and they're all valuable 
for the for the finished product to be something you can but be the proud pro- of. But the process, I mean, as an outsider, because I'm not a writer, I mean, the 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 level of you know pushing down ego issues that all the writers have to have. Because I've seen when they pitch things, you know, during tapings, they will pitch things. I would cry, you know, if if an idea of mine did not even get, you know, used. And that you have to do that, right? I mean, they just keep throwing things out there. Yeah, the attrition rate's ridiculous. It's unbelievable yeah, to me. Yeah. I mean, like, it makes me cry when I just watch the process. By the time you see a script, you, you, you haven't seen 50 ideas that were thrown right, out. Right. For that, just for that story, you know. So it's it's but it the process works. It's just it's it's actually pretty efficient, even even though it seems inefficient. Uh, but I think also you'd be so under the gun of well, we have to get a show produced. I don't think you would stop to process it that much emotionally. Because you'd be like, okay, well, how about this? Well, I think it's a different it's a different personality type, though. You know, like I could not tolerate that. I couldn't. I could. I wouldn't make it in that environment. You know, our writers are people who they just have ideas and you keep spitting them out, and some of them stick and some of them don't. As an actor, it's a very different process. Mm-hmm. Like people always say, like, oh, do you guys improvise? No, because everybody's writing for us. Yeah, we but as a scientist, to. you understand that yeah. that things that you have to fail a bunch before sure. you get before you find something that works. Yeah, but that's also not fun, you know. <laughs> and being a scientist, you know, you're you're often alone. You know, writing a thesis is a a solitary project, so you know you're up against your own rejection. But it's a different culture, you know that writers' room. I mean, I'm always I always uh, love to meet people who were performers as children and somehow not only survived that process but also thrived. And oftentimes, you know, when I talk to people, the common thread seems to be like, well, they had parents who gave a shit or. Looked in. Did you? Was that part of your experience too? Uh, I don't want to say I, I didn't have parents that gave a shit. Oh, um, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> no, so they I, got you a dentist, right? They got me. They, they, got, me a they got your own dentist. Um, you know, I um, I don't know if there's one thing. You know, I I know a lot of people who, um, you know, who didn't survive sometimes literally, you right. know, and sometimes figuratively from our childhoods. Um. And, you know, I hate to say, well, this is why, you know, I came out of it like this. You know, I think every story is very unique. My parents were first generation Americans. So I was raised with a very like immigrant, you know, kind of mentality. And they tried to keep my life as normal as possible. You know, I was still responsible for myself and my things. Also, I'm very fortunate. I mean, I worked for Whit Thomas. You know, I worked for Whit Thomas Harris and Whit Thomas. I was on Blossom from 14 to 19. And I'm very, very lucky. We had a very clean set. I didn't see drugs and drinking, you know, on set. I didn't go to parties. Back then there was no publicity machine that was telling young actors to look like adults or act like adults and go to parties. Of course there were individuals who did that and you saw them in the media, but it was much more infrequent. There wasn't really a culture of partying. You know, Johnny Galecki and I worked together when we were 14 and neither of us were out clubbing, you know, at night. And right. so it was it was very different, but I think it's more that I come from a very you know, conservative kind of old world mentality home that I was kind of very cloistered, um, you know, from from a lot of that stuff. But I went to public school in L.A. my whole life. And, um, you know, there were kids who weren't child actors who also, you know, had a really hard time coping, uh, not with drugs and alcohol, but with being sober without them. So, you know, so I think you, you see it a lot of different ways. But I think for me, you know, both my parents were teachers and having immigrant grandparents who, you know, never finished elementary school or junior high, you know, it was 
Like, you have to go to college. So to me, that was always something that I knew I would do. And, you know, I was kind of an accidental child actor. You know, I started acting what's considered late for children, you know, in start when I was starting junior high because I liked school plays and I thought, you know, I like making people happy. And when I do things right, the audience is happy. Right. That was really my motivation. I'm not like an ego actor of like, tell me I'm great. I'm great. You know, right? It was much more like, oh, this it feels good when they're happy. It feels good when a writer's happy, you know? So for me, I was kind of a late bloomer to the industry, and I was cast in Beaches a year after starting acting. It was really like a whirlwind. I was always like a, you know, kind of geeky kid who never fit in. So I wasn't taken with Hollywood life. I wasn't like, this feels great. You know, I'm so awesome. And everybody tells me all the time. You know, I was an awkward looking child. I'm, you know, relatively unusual looking adult. So like, for me, it wasn't like everyone now sees how fabulous and gorgeous I am. You know, there was a tremendous amount of scrutiny for non-traditional looking females when I was a teenager. And so I was happy to, you know, use my brain and study science, which is what I fell in love with in high school. But 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 I feel like a lot of people would have been kind of crushed from the weight of conforming to society standards, especially, especially aesthetic society standards. Sure. And maybe would have, you know, like, glug, 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 yeah. you know, and for some reason, for, for some reason, you you pursued... Science, like you, yeah. you went inward. Well, I did. I really did go inward. You know, um, I mean, for me, you know, my my vice is work, and you know, being in here. So for me, being a student was very comfortable. Um, I didn't socialize. I didn't go out much. You know, I dedicated my life to being appreciated for my intellectual capacity. You know, and I. I studied, I minored in Hebrew and Jewish studies. I learned Hebrew. I studied Yiddish. You know, I did all these things that human beings should have a right to do, even <laughs> if they were on television, you know. But I think, uh, you know, I think for me, there, you know, especially as, as a female, and this is something, you know, I, I write a lot about and I talk a lot about, you know, there always was this fantasy, like, maybe I'll trip and fall and break my nose and they'll have to fix it and it'll be small and I'll look like all the girls in my class, you know. There always was this notion of, like, what would it take to be like other people? And I think one of the comforting things about being now a grown-up is it doesn't bother you as much. Like, I still know I'm not like a lot of other people, but you get more comfortable in your skin as you get older. But, you know, I credit therapy. I, I credit a lot of good support for, you know, all of the challenges of life. Because being in the public eye is hard, even when there's no, you know, internet the first time around. It's so, it's so hard to say that because to, to a child who might feel like, Oh, I'm not, you know, I don't conform to these standards that other people seem to like. And other people mentioned there's popular kids and there's beautiful kids and, you know, but when you look back, you know, what you want to say to a kid is like, yeah, I know, but they'll peak early. Yeah. You got to just trust me. They'll yeah. peak early and you'll do great things. Like you'll do great things if you, if you use your mind and you figure out creative ways to, you know. Yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't know that my parents knew to do that. You know, neither of them were scientifically inclined and they had their own issues and, you know, resources or lack thereof. So my mom always said, they're just jealous of you. They're jealous of you. Really, mom? Because they're teasing me all the time and they say I'm ugly and I have no breasts yet. They're jealous. How could <laughs> they, they say, possibly they be jealous? Yet? You have no breasts yet. <laughs> but <laughs> when I said to her, I, and I think honestly something I've talked about in therapy, like that really, it messes with your concept of reality because there was no notion that they were jealous. It didn't feel like that. <laughs> what could they be jealous of? Like, I, that's really not, but that I think that's all they knew, you know, that's all they knew to do and say. And when people ask what's the difference between academia and, you know, being an actor on The Big Bang Theory, I mean, you know, the ego stuff is about the same in the industry for actors as in academia. That's sure. still a huge part of it. But, you know, n not having to worry really 
really about your public face is something I, I do miss, you know? Yeah. I used to go to school in my pajamas. Everyone in the sciences did, you know? <laughs> I sometimes go to – well, I go to work in, in my pajamas a lot. Now. <laughs> I feel like that's allowed. It. I feel like that should be allowed. Sure. <laughs> but, I, but I wanted to ask you kind of based on your talk with Neil, um, how do you – how do you um, kind of balance, and maybe this is a dumb question, so I apologize in advance, but how do you balance your religion and your science? Um, I don't really feel a, a conflict, you know? The, well, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, and the Torah is not a science book, you know? That's right. how I do it. So it's like I wouldn't go to the Torah to find out how the world was created. Go to a science book and all of the, you know, understanding of science. But, you know, for me, having a notion of a power greater than myself is helpful. It's humbling and it's uh, it's grounding. It gives me perspective. And, you know, I feel like for me, when I started kind of learning more about the philosophy of religion and um, understanding why humans behave the way they do in structured you know, groups. Um, for me, it gave me a lot of a lot of comfort. And I'm a person who likes structure and I like ritual. And um, I'm part of a people that, you know, is even if we're not religiously identified, we're culturally identified for thousands and thousands of years. So, um, you know, for me, I don't I don't really feel a conflict about it. Everything beautiful I learn about science affirms my faith that I didn't make it. And everything beautiful about feeling connected to something bigger than me makes me wonder about the neurochemistry behind that set of sensations and where is consciousness in the brain and what does it mean to feel in love with someone. It's generally a lot of chemistry and I love knowing about that and I think that's divine. I think the brain's, you know, it's an unbelievable thing. That's why I chose to to study that in particular. Well, I'm glad. And I, and I wasn't trying to front load with that. How could you? Like, I'm just no, genuinely... No, but I get that too. Just genuinely <laughs> curious because, you yeah. know, there, there are lines where it's like, oh, some of these don't meet and some people are maybe more one side than the other. And, yeah, I mean, you know. t- to me, I feel like there are there are such bigger issues both in religion and in science, you know, to to conquer rather than how do they exist. And, you know, it's, it's not that different from the question, you know, how can you be, you know, how can I be a feminist and also really domestic? You know, I mean, a lot of people say, like, if you're such a feminist, how could you have children and have them tie you down? Because people are people and we're all sorts of things, you know? You don't have to pick. Isn't the secret sauce <laughs> behind that that you... You choose what you what you want. Um, sure. I mean, by that same token, this is you know we could talk about this. You know, you could say I choose to be a sex worker. You know, so right. I think it gets a little more complicated. But um, you know, I, I'm a lot of things, and I don't I don't have to say that because I'm a religious person, I can't be a scientist. Absolutely. And, and you know, most of my most of the religious people that I know don't think that either. And I have met religious people who really believe in the creation story, and that's really nice. But even you know. Like, that's, that's not really what that's not what it says to do you know this is not the book to use as your science book this is a you know a religious historical spiritual document i read a, i read an interesting article there's a a, a guy i might fuck up his name but i think it's robert maxwell anyway he he's documenting right now he's been kind of digging through the ashes of chernobyl and just kind of seeing like kind of excavating you know what this was wasn't that your second spec script for that golden was the girls? second special yes. for golden girls was, digging called, through the ashes was called of chernobyl. i choose to be a sex worker <laughs> <laughs> that was my second okay spec so script. that 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 would have been blanche <laughs> 
<laughs> that was a Blanche heavy script. I'm sorry, script. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I don't Chernobyl. mind at all. This is like, listen, so this podcast is. You, you jump in and you riff whatever you want. This is about your time. I want you to feel, I want you to riff and fuck around as much as you want to. But we get to say fuck. We you do. do. You can say I whatever, saw that. Say whatever you want. But this, this, but he had a very, he had a quote that I absolutely loved, which he says, you know, history is what people say happened, and archaeology is what actually happened, and it is that kind of like let's. You know the stories. The stories are nice, but well, let, let's get to what the science. Right, and is. I, th- I actually I took a course in biblical archaeology, which is you know fascinating. When I was in college, and you know I think the fact is also like you have to you have to decide what's important and what's of value from these stories. You know, I have a seven year old, and uh, we watched Prince of Egypt and we watched Exodus, Gods and Kings this Passover. You know, because I I figured here are movies about this season, and he said to me, "So, Mama, did it really happen?" And I said, that's a great question. I said, you know, there are a lot of ways to answer it. We can talk about the Sea of Reeds and there could be a storm and it's very shallow. But if there's a storm, you know, but I said, the the fact is like what's important is what we choose to take out of it. You know, we have a meal every year where we talk about the story and we celebrate freedom and talk about freeing people from oppression all over the world. That's the purpose of the story and not to have, you know, a political or philosophical argument about did a miracle happen. Right. Like to me, that's like... That is a discussion for another time. But for me, when I'm choosing to raise my children with a religious faith, like it's about what do they take from these stories that will make them go out into the world and and write things that are wrong. Right. To seek justice and pursue it. Like to be to be people who help other people. That that should be the purpose. Got it. I mean, it it is it's nice to hear this idea of using it as um you know, like as as a guide to remind us so we don't make the same mistakes over sure, and over which we again. keep doing. You of know. course we do. Like if, if we were done making those mistakes, I'd say no one needs religion at all, you know. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, it, no matter what generation it is, although, although it does really feel like things are a lot worse now. It really does. It really I would go does. ahead and agree with you I there. I would go ahead and say it feels like things are... But who knows? In the 60s during the Cold War when everyone thought we were a minute away from nuclear annihilation, sure. maybe yeah, they thought that Yeah, but you were on your own, not connected to anybody, didn't know there were crazy fringe groups that could find each other right. and get constantly, together. Constantly reminded all the time. Share things on Facebook. Well, it's... You know, it's we're in clickbait <laughs> culture now. We're in... We're in you know, the media's... Yeah, the the sort of uh, we need to drive traffic, so we're going to report on the worst angles of everything possible because we know people will click on that. Sure. And we know that will drive traffic. I mean, it is a we are in a fearocracy right now where it's just it's fucking terrifying to look at anything. I mean, do you? Uh, that's what sitcoms are for. That's exactly what sitcoms are for because it is. It's like a thirty minute window to not have to. 2130. 21 minutes, yeah. 20, 21 <laughs> and some commercials. You know, we watch the commercials because they're very important. Advertising pays for television, and that's why it's important to watch all the commercials. But um, <laughs> this is brought to you by Les Moonves. <laughs> uh, but Hallowed be his name. But speaking of structure, though, do you, do, you, do you talk about your sobriety much? Do you talk about sobriety much? No. Okay. No, no, it's just a personal thing for me. But, you know, it does play in, uh, very strongly into what Maya was talking about, about a spiritual life that, yeah. uh, that, uh, that allows for any of this to happen. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The, my dirty little secret is how much I pray in the writing room. <laughs> Please. I don't know how to do this. I don't like these people. I want to go home. Help me. I can't do this anymore. I on the floor. I don't, know, I don't know why. There's no second act. It's like, uh, please. just like throws a blanket over you. Like, just let him sleep here. No, you know, no. This, this, it's very much recognition that, you know, that, that uh, self-will is not going to do it. Well, I think there's also this, this 
I think there's a general misconception where people think, oh, well, Chuck Lorre, he's the most, one of the most successful television people ever. He's got, he doesn't have any problems. Got, how could you have a fucking problem? But I would imagine it's hard to not take home the pressure of a lot of people depend on you. A lot of different, it's, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, potentially. No, you, you can't think, I, don't, I never think that way. You don't take it home. No, no. I, I mean, what I do on any given day is what do we have to do now? Right. I mean, it's really that simple. You know, we have to fix that scene that didn't work yesterday. And that's what we do. And we just do that. And there's no, there's no, there's no big picture. It's just, why isn't this funny? Let's make it funny or cut it. Um, and um, so it's really, it's a task-oriented kind of thing. Um, you don't get caught up in the the big picture doesn't exist in the writer's room for or us, on the or on for, the stage. For us too, we're asked that yeah. too. You know, yeah. like how does it feel to have twenty million people watching? We, yeah. And we we one day at a time. It you know, like it's yeah. one episode at a time. And for yeah. us, our two hundredth episode was as important as our one hundred ninety eighth, and as our two hundred third. Like you can't. I mean, at least for us, and yeah. I think for them as well. Like we take them one at a time. We make the best show that we can every Tuesday in front of a live audience. That's our job. I, I think everybody on that's what makes the show so special. I mean, not to just sit here and plug it, but it's true. We don't treat the audience cavalierly. It, they could go away if we don't make a good show. Yeah. The relationship is so fragile. There's so many other things you could be doing. So every show matters. Every every moment of every show matters, frankly, because an accumulation of of mundane or unfunny moments is a bad show. So. It's uh, it can make you crazy, but uh, the reward of uh, hearing a live audience explode with laughter is extraordinary. Or hearing the deafening silence of something that needs to be rewritten. Oh, is also, it's yeah, equally powerful. You can, though. You, you, you can hear the one thirty four freeway from our stage when it doesn't work. <laughs> yep. you, can, you, you really can hear it's the silence is is suction soul it's right out. Two sides of the same coin, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, this no, is yeah. this is the play of of your words and and how mm-hmm. how they are received. Yeah, and the live audience is a litmus test. It really does. T- they don't. They're there to. They're, they come. It's a tough ticket to get now to come see the Big Bang Theory live, but they're still there, responding or not, based on the quality of the material. Well, that's good because it, it, it does. It is nice to know that you're earning it. You know, like yeah. that if the audience, the audience isn't always going to laugh every time just because. Well, and isn't and I the think... laugh after much more gratifying? <laughs> what do you mean? Like from... if you don't get a laugh and you, fix you break it. and you, the writers fix it and yeah. then you go oh. and you hit that laugh? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's really gratifying yeah. when you get it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, you know, the audience ta- taught us a lot from the very beginning. We started to learn that the audience is very protective of these characters. Mm-hmm. There's a naivete to the, especially the guys. And they have a protective, uh, um, in, in, you know, take on them. And and when we were doing material early on, where I d- hadn't understood that this is a different tone than two and a half men, drastically different tone, and the material got too risque. The audience not only was there silence, you could hear, <gasps> <laughs> you know, you hear two hundred people go, <gasps> and they really did not want these characters to go down that road. It was inappropriate for them. They had a, they had basically adopted them and said, no, here's how they are. And to a certain extent, you have to honor that. To a certain extent, if you honor too much, you kill yourself and you'll kill the show right. by pandering to right. what you think they want. But they helped teach us the tone of the show. I mean, are you still discovering these characters 
Yeah, we discover them because we don't write them ourselves, you know. We we get new things every week. And when people say, oh, what's going to happen later this season? I learn about it just like you learn about your life. I learn about it as it comes. We get a script the night before. We start to work on it the next day. And we have a week. One of my favorite episodes we did was when we found out Sheldon uh, was a hoarder. And it was such a sweet episode. And it was such a physically confining episode. We were just in his, you know, in his storage unit. And for me and Jim, it was very uncomfortable because we literally couldn't move. But that's where those characters were. It was a new piece of information. And we had to figure out how to deal with it. I mean, our characters had sex for the first time, you know, and... Jim and I weren't even ready for that. We had to to really figure it out. Like, what does it look like? Where where are we at? What does it mean? And like, that's our job, you know? That's our job. We play make-believe every week, but... It, it's not material that we've created. It's whatever whatever our writers create. We are crafted from their clay. <laughs> well, but this sort of packet switching of going back and forth between... I mean, what does your, your week look like? I mean, is it ever... You know, is everything in production at the same time? Mm-hmm, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you spend one day at each show? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it feels like... No, it. you run back and forth sometimes during the day. But, you know, you can't talk about the Big Bang Theory and the quality of the writing without talking about Steve Malero, yeah. who's been the showrunner the last couple of years and has grown the show emotionally. I know Steve. He's a really nice guy. He's just, you know. The, he's the, our people. The sh- the re- he is. He's our people. I really, the, the show in the last couple of years has gone far, far beyond where I could have taken it. So, I mean, you've got to have a shout out for that. You know, and I, that's the that group of people in the writers' room are just—they're amazing. He's, he's being very modest, though. I mean, he's at our run-throughs. He's—he's he's there. We—we we know when he's not there, and we feel it when he's not there. He—he he parents all of us, you know. I mean, it's—I always—I'm. He brings you all protein. He brings <laughs> and he takes you to the right. dentist. My children can go to the dentist Whole because of this. Of protein, thing. Not <laughs> protein on stage twelve. <laughs> The uh, the Will Wheaton tie-ins are delightful, just because Will, you know, is, he's such a sweetheart, and and Will, you know, Will was someone who would tell you was kind of rejected by television for so long and painted into a box and had difficulty being whatever the rest of television wanted to be, and then finally here comes a show that's like, oh, you just get to be Will. Like, he's our well, and and our show is for the Will Wheatons yeah. of the world. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's what's so much fun about having him there. I mean, at least for me. <laughs> So what do you got? Uh, was there anything you wanted to plug besides Big Bang while you're here? Or plug the slots? No, don't plug the slots. <laughs> you, you know, you couldn't have given a better plug to the slots. I drive four hours. I give the money. I drive home. Yep. Yeah, but it. he made. It, <laughs> but the way that it was presented made it sound kind of sad. So I don't know if that was really helping. It's sad about you. the way I escape. I, you know, listen. If I, if I get an opportunity to plug anything, I try and remind your viewers, your listeners. There's nobody viewing. Or, uh, to watch mom. people are seeing with their ears. To watch, watch mom. mom, you know, because that's been a, a, a great source of pride and and passion for for me for the last couple of years. Very good friends with Kevin Pollock, and you killed him. We did. <laughs> we did. We did. Yeah. 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 You know, he's smart ass. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Says, Guess you what? Know, no one read this script. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we can't no, kill you, huh? We, we love Kevin. He was great, and it was just that, that was a hard decision to make. But the, the show was very much about these women struggling to deal with life on life's terms without medication. Mm. And sometimes life deals that card, and I, I wanted to see what would happen if we took away a relationship that was starting to, you know, fill up Alice and Janie's character's life, and and Anna's, it was yeah. his fa- as her father. 
So, um, yeah, we've taken some chances on that show. We're trying to push the envelope a little bit, storytelling-wise. And uh, it's been really gratifying. We, I just came back from Washington, D.C., where we did a panel with the Surgeon General uh, about addiction at the White House. Oh, wow. That's great. Which was really, really so what amazing. Is that, was that what she was doing in the White huh? House when she, she Yeah, they, she the, 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 yeah the, 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 press secre- the press secretary uh, um, pitched that idea. You want to you go and do the press thing and you'll, you'll pretend you're CJ. And, <laughs> and, and great, do it. Yeah, so. what, is the Surgeon General, what is the Surgeon General panel about addiction? What are they? It was, it was about, there's a, a, a White House program called Champions of Change and they're, they're basically taking people and singling them out, bringing them to Washington to talk about things they're doing differently. Mm-hmm. Like they had a police chief from uh, the Boston area who'd pretty, who'd I'm going to get this entirely wrong, but something along the lines of he got it out there that anybody who calls the police department says, I have a drug problem, they will get them help. No questions asked, no criminal charges, no, no, no police-ness. Right. <laughs> Just call us. We will get you to a sober living facility, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a detox unit, whatever you need. And so he was part of a panel as well. So they had people from all walks of life in the country who were doing things a little differently. I wish I wouldn't. I mean, I've been in recovery for 13 years. And if there's any, I would love to be able to. Fender bills. How about that? Speak. <laughs> yeah. I would love to speak. To, I mean, like if, they, if, there are, if there are panels of this nature where people are saying, you know, how can we get help or do we have any ideas? I mean, that, I think that would be really great to be able because I get a lot of emails from people mm-hmm. About I'm thinking about it. I don't know if I should. And I was like, if, if if you're that conscious of it, it's probably something you should explore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virgins don't think they're pregnant. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. And the show has been basically, you know, the subliminal message is there's hope that recovery is possible. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't. And it's not grim. It's not a grim grinding road. There's a lot of laughter in it, which, as you know, is is, is the truth of it. You know, if it was grim, nobody would want to do it. Have you ever thought about doing kind of a, a darker, maybe single camera dramedy about addiction or recovery? Or uh, You know, mom's fulfilling all that right now. <laughs> <laughs> this man you speaks know. in sitcom. You know, and every time I, I pitch anything other than a four camera sitcom, I, you know, I notice network and TV executives look down at their shoes. So you want us to the same camera four times? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, one, no, just one camera and be a very, you know, so we're gonna very put razor's it, edge kind of. I don't understand. What do oh, we, yeah, Jimmy Barrows doesn't know what to do with that. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> but it's even interesting listening to you. Like, it's, it's easy to see why you're good at what you do because any show that you mention, you immediately talk about what it's about or what the script is about. And, um, you know, years ago, John Stewart had said something that was really interesting, which is like, you know, a show has to be about something. What is it about? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's the most fundamental question that a lot of people don't ask when they're setting out to, you know, to they ask, to, they, they ask the, what happens and what, what happens, happens is irrelevant. What are the jokes, but yeah. the jokes are so funny. It's like, no, yeah, but no, it's not about anything. No, it's, and, and it's always who. It's never what, where, or why. It's who. Who are these people, and why do I care? Right. You know, because I think if you, you know, that's the fun. That's the magic trick of a half-hour comedy. Do I care about these people? And if, and that's part writing part the actor and some actors have that ability to create empathy just that hello this lady here does yeah. you know I mean it's remarkable but you can tell the difference and you, if you sit in enough people auditions people feel sorry for me everywhere <laughs> I go <laughs> when you, you know <laughs> empathy not you know, You're right. caring I, compassion right um, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of alchemy in a way to, to have an audience give a damn 
You know, I mean, you cared about the characters in Cheers. You know, and as caustic as they were, you cared about the guys and 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 and, and the woman in, in Seinfeld. You know, th- th- that cast. You wanted to be part of that group, right? You wanted to have a beer with Norman Cliff. You know, uh, there's something about that surrogate family that pulls you in. Well, because they all represent. And I think a lot of it is is finding what is the humanity of this character. Like, what is the humanity, no matter how far out the character might be. You know, what's human about that character that I can that I can relate to? I may not have their same set of you know issues, but right. I I get it. Yeah, and if you and if you can see a little bit of yourself or your brother, your sister, your mother, your father in that character, the character you know ceases to simply be an, an actor in a TV show. How do you pit like what? How do you pitch a show? Like what? What is your what is, it, what is the Chuck Lorre guide to pitching a show? Be Chuck Lorre. <laughs> it helps. You know, it, listen, it helped, two, have, it, it, it helped have two and a half men on the air doing as well as it was doing when I went to CBS and said, I want to do a show about quantum physicists. Right. <laughs> because the, 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 the dead eye face was... They just had to scoop a pile of money. I was like, what? <laughs> no, you say something? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, no, it, it helped. They, they, you know, I had the benefit of the doubt. You know, I mean, they, you know, they... It it, it it was it, it was easier to say I want to do a show about physicists and their attempt to live in the real world, based on the fact that okay, two and a half men's working, you know. In fact, we we did the the first pilot so badly <laughs> for Big Bang. For Big Bang, there's two pilots. The first pilot was an absolute train wreck. We didn't understand what we were doing, and uh, they called and said, um, "Would you do it again?" And I said, "Oh, absolutely, it sucked." We've talked about it. Uh, it was written badly, f- for starters. We had Jim and we had Johnny, and we didn't have Simon. We didn't have Kunal. We didn't have Kaylee. Um, we didn't understand what we were doing yet. And the first one was uh, was a you know was a trial by fire, and we learned a lot. We learned how vulnerable and and you know what I remember saying to Bill when we got to do it again. Let's take all the story out and just write about these people. Just nothing happens. And if you go back and look at the Big Bang pilot. Uh, these two guys meet this beautiful young woman, and, and and one of them is totally enamored with her. And she asks them to do her a favor and sends them on a mission. They fail, and then they go to dinner. That's the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> That's the entire pilot. Literally nothing really happens except you get a just a, a little bit of a window into these extraordinary characters. And we were really fortunate. We just got hit by lightning across the board with all the uh, casting. And then three years later, Mayim and Melissa made the show expand in an unbelievable way. Uh, and I, I, I also think it's very important to have – because someone said to me – I don't remember what it was, but – oh. I'm getting married soon, and my fiance likes all the same stuff that I like. And someone said, "Oh, is she going to make you get rid of all your like uh, movie props and action figures and stuff?" And I was like, "No, because I'm marrying someone who likes the same things I like." And there is still this stigma that's like, "Oh, nerd culture is a guy thing." And I keep saying to people, "Like, it's fucking not a guy. Like, it is. It is a. It is a thing." There, there's no. It's not. There's not race bound. It's not religion bound. It's not gender bound. And so I feel it's sky, but it's sky. Yeah, it's a nerd oh, it's Robert Kirkman's. But uh, but it, it, you know, do you feel that like representing characters on television who are in this world that it's particularly important to like these need to be specific characters to well, represent them properly? I think what's kind of interesting, you know, I, I'm a I'm a person in real life, you know, who is on the nerd and geek, you know, uh, tip. 
<clears throat> just tried to make it cool. Um, but our female characters, you know, Melissa Rausch plays a microbiologist, and my character is a, is a neurobiologist. Neither of them are geeks in the show. And uh, we do a lot of episodes, or we did do a lot of episodes, at least early on, you know, where the guys would be into D&D and the girls weren't into that. And so I actually think what's neat about our show is we're kind of showing the full gamut of, of male and female scientists, you know, and when people say like, oh, your show stereotypes women, and I say, well, actually, you know, no, even just in Bernadette and Amy, we have two very different kinds of female scientists, you know, Amy's very kind of frumpy and, you know, unadorned, and the Bernadette character, you know, she wears little headbands and cute little sweaters and things, and, and the fact is, there are all those different types, so, you know, it was a writer's choice to not make the girls equally geeky and into, you know, all of the things that the guys are, but but to me, that's part of, you know, kind of showing all the, the variety of different types of people and if you want to think about the difference between nerds and geeks our, our females fall more into the nerd rather than geek category whereas the guys kind of fall into both yeah, I think see Steve's head spin if there's not enough girls in the comic book store <laughs> right yeah, I just get so upset <laughs> yeah you know? well, I think you also have the ultimate card to play on people when they go I don't know if this and you're like no I'm a scientist I, I know well when I when I first watched a clip of Jim Parsons because I was told they wanted a, a female Sheldon Cooper and I was like who's that so I Googled, <laughs> I Googled Jim Parsons. She doesn't Parsons. get to watch a lot of TV shows. I, I didn't watch TV at that time. And I watched about, I don't know, 15 seconds of Jim Parsons doing a Sheldon monologue. And I said, oh, I know people like this. I can do this. And I turned it off. And I, I know plenty of people, like all of these characters. I went to school with them. I am a lot of all of these characters, too. So for me, that's super fun. I went to UCLA. I went to UCLA as well. Yes, you studied philosophy. I How did so, you know that? I looked you up a little. I knew a little bit about you. Okay, well, that's all you need. Yeah, to I took some classes in your department. You did, and I took a I couple did. classes in your South Campus department. Did you put too. on your pajamas to come to South Campus? I did not put on my pajamas to come to South Campus, but I remember taking uh, Microbio Six, which I think was Introduction to mm-hmm. Microbiology. Yeah, and uh, and I liked I liked South Campus, but it was a I entered as a math major, oh. and then I found it too structured, and then so I ended up in the philosophy department, which was like a complete <laughs> lack of you know. It's the study of unstructure. It is the study of unstructure, but it, but it's inherently structured because they're still grading you. Sure. So there, it's like, how can you give me a grade if everything is subjective? <laughs> That's what we wanted you to ask, Christopher. Here's your diploma. Oh my God! I just get a diploma. I just start. It's my first day. I yes, but you asked the right questions. Jesus. Have you, you, have you discussed? Have you discussed this with Eric Kaplan? No, I haven't. Because no, oh. Eric, Eric, Eric's doctoral thesis, philosophy of mind. Ph- yeah, it was uh, philosophy of mind. He's and, one of our co-executive and, producers. And in in preparing this thesis, he he proved that he didn't have to do it, and he quit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess he went to work for SNL after that's that. That's right. <laughs> right. They must have given it to he him. He walked after that. away. Well, that's why. I mean, I do. I love. I love. Well, math. I think is easier for me sometimes to wrap my head around because there are definite answers in math and science. There are answers, but we just haven't figured out most. Sure. Of no, them math yet. is a language. It's like if you look at it like learning a language. There's a there's a structure to it, and there's semantics, and there's syntax, and yeah. Yeah, I just I liked philosophy because Steve Martin was a philosophy major, and <laughs> I thought it was great for comedy, and it was. But I always wish that I had the discipline to go back and and no, s- still plenty of time, Chris. <laughs> there's not. It's over. Well, I'm done learning. Okay, math. that's fine. That's fair. <laughs> I don't fucking care anymore. No, but I, but I, but I would love to. You know, I think that's why it's so important to promote STEM. Um, you know, if it, but what are schools doing to make science interesting for kids? I could. Just, I wish you could have seen the look in Mime's face. Like, oh, oh man, not as much as they should be. You know, part of what I do is 
not only to put a friendly face on these on these subjects, but also a female face, you know, so that it is equally equally represented as as for males and females. Um, you know, I think I think that girls may need a lot of girls may need something a little bit different to get them engaged earlier on. And, um, you know, I do talk a lot about that, the importance of mentorship and teaching about the the breadth of science careers, because for young for young women, especially the notion of being alone in a lab is is not appealing to many females, especially in elementary school and, you know, junior high when we need to sort of get their interest. So, um, you know, I think. I think we, we, we're swinging too far on the pendulum both ways in terms of, you know, emphasizing testing scores versus emphasizing not testing scores. I think it's, you know. Especially in the, middle of, in the middle of this, uh, in the middle of uh, Kardashian, oh. where it's just like, hey, just be famous at all costs. Yep. Who cares? I as think long as you're famous, that's important. I think that's a different set of challenges. And I think that is different for males and females, you know, much as there are certain things that are, you know, like geek culture being, uh, you know, gender blind. There are certain things that, that are very different about males and females and social development. And yeah, the way our culture presents all of what is interesting does have a large impact, you know. We should probably mention our, our scholarship. We should. Oh, you should uh, while we're on the UCLA we, yeah, yeah, uh, topic, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, we, we, we have, we've created a scholarship, a Big Bang Theory scholarship for STEM students at UCLA. That, Is that uh, where my slot machine money goes? Huh? <laughs> no, that goes to uh, that Adelson fellow. Oh, okay. Sheldon. Yeah, yeah. Steve Wynn. I don't know where you. <laughs> I don't it depends know. Depends where it was uh, But yeah, we we have a. It's a financial based uh, yeah, scholarship. It's a so financial based scholarship, but uh, it's you know it's based on uh, both uh, need and and merit, and um, we had we had our first twenty freshmen this spring, and we're going to add I think six to ten every year. Oh, oh wow! It's it's funded it's through really cool. it's about four and a half million dollars. Oh, that's wow. fantastic. And uh, hopefully it'll be one of those things that can run in perpetuity and go to other schools as well, and s- strictly for STEM students. So, yeah. And they are known as our Big Bang Theory our scholars. Our Big Bang scholars, and they come to the stage, and we t- and it's, and it's just it's wonderful. It's just an extraordinary thing to hang out with these kids because, you know, what we're doing is, you know, we're it's gap funding. It's helping them, you know, so that they can just do strictly do the work of, of, of being a student. But, uh, you know... Oh, get on a bus. You're coming over to the stage and you're going to hang out and see a show and stuff like that. It, it makes it real. And, you know, we're not – it's not just a check. We, you know, we can participate because it's local. Right. Well, I think it's good for people because most of the time, particularly with scholarships, there's, it's not like there's a face – or a person that, that, that no, is associated with No, I applied for it. so many scholarships of, like, people with names that I, you know, didn't even recognize <laughs> and with, like, the this one, this one scholarship. So for us, it's really cool that mm-hmm. they applied to a lot of scholarships so that they could afford to go to school and not have to also work two jobs, you know, which many people do. Well, particularly in Westwood, where um, – is which is one of the most expensive cities to live in, you know, yeah. for – which is crazy. Yep. Yeah, but it can't beat that traffic. What? It's terrible. It is terrible. I was in Westwood today. Like, I know all the back routes so that yeah. I can avoid all the traffic. Blend in. You just, like, oh, yeah. sneak up the uh, side. And you're, you're behind Hooked people. Up and you're like, oh, 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 found my favorite parking lot. Oh, got a spot. God. Yeah. I was so pissed because I was never, when I started, UC, I started UCLA in 89, and there was no, they did not have guaranteed How housing. much was parking? Do you remember? Fuck, it was so expensive. When well, I started, it was $5 on campus. It's now, I think, 12 well, the, the the funniest part about when I started was that uh, my family moved here in 88, so I had, I was here for a year, my last year. So I qualified for I qualified for resident status. <laughs> my first quarter fees were like $400 as a resident yeah. to go to UCLA, but I, there was no I couldn't get guaranteed housing, so I fucking commuted from Pasadena, <laughs> oh, which was Oh god. It was bad. 
not to turn this into a Californian sketch, but it was <laughs> god awful. How did you get there? What freeway? Well, sometimes, depending on the time, I would either take the 110 to the 10 and over the 405, or maybe I would take the 134 straight up to the 405 yeah, and back to the Skirball Center past the way I'd go. Yeah. But there's no e- there's no- there's no easy way to get to Westwood. No. It is traffic. It is Todd traffic. didn't want to have lunch there today because of the traffic in Westwood. Todd's not having it. That's no. Todd doesn't put up with shit. I can already see <laughs> the moleskin has been put away. Todd is past. Todd gives no fucks. That's right. My, my, my music's the Westwood music's, and I have to find parking. Where's your music Westwood? store? Is your, which True Tone. Yeah? Oh, I love True Tone. True Tone right? on Santa Monica around uh, Lincoln. Yeah? Yeah. Exactly where it is. What's your favorite guitar? I've had a '64 Strat since '69. That's been my that's been my home. What is it? uh, Two tone? Is it Sunburst? It used to be Sunburst. (laughs) It's pretty worn out. Like Rory Gallagher's now. It's pretty beat up. But you know, believe it or not, it was beat up when I bought it in 1969. Oh, that's great. For you know, I believe two hundred dollars with the case, and I thought, oh, I'm never going to pay this off. '64 Rosewood, (laughs) Rosewood neck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I just got a '64 Jag. Nice. Left-handed. Ooh. Yeah, try a, to find that. Ooh, wow, you're a southpaw? Yeah, I am. Wow. I just got these clear D&D dice so you can see right through. <laughs> yeah. <all> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just got to... You should be... You, you play D&D? What? I have, yeah. Have you, play, have you play, done Critical Role? No. Oh, it's really fun. I mean, I've seen Will... I've seen Will... I've seen him posting about it. I'd probably like that. I I've got, I've got ago, issues really with fun. the role-play parts of certain campaigns... But yeah. we can talk about it another time. Interesting. I cry sometimes when when put on the spot to do D and D role play. I like I like rolling. I like strategy. I like the math. I like the logic. But I played with a group of actors last time, and it was way too actory. Got it. Got it. And got I started it, to it. cry. It's a social anxiety <laughs> thing. And I was like, I'm totally a D and D person, but I'm crying. This is not working. The critical role gets dramatic sometimes. I'm like, fine they, with they, drama. They, they I'm fine with a different kind of drama. Right. But yeah. You but I won't yourself- talk like this for my. Character the whole time. I Let promise. it be known that all the no. means are on. No. Oh right. God. No, I can't do it. All right, I, maybe I can do that too easily. That sounds <laughs> terrible. <laughs> maybe it's not. Maybe I'm broken. Guys, maybe I can't be myself. Are you going to go to Ren Fair? Are you going to go to Ren Fair? Yes, I will go to Ren Fair. Oh, it's, it's so great. It's good times. Yeah. Do your kids like it? Yeah, they're they are homeschooled, so a lot of people in the homeschool community here in LA love all things Ren Fair, and a lot of moms in our community wear corsets all the time. Yeah. So yeah, but there's actually they went already with their dad. They do a kid friendly day yep. where things are less bawdy, uh. and there is no cursing <laughs> in the shows. So they went, but then well, I'll go again with them on a, a regular bawdy weekend. Yeah. But yeah, I mainly like the swords parts of it. Oh, it's so And fun. I like jousting. Do you do the axe throwing where you throw the I will axe not be the... throwing axes okay, now. Okay, all right, you don't have to. No, and I don't eat turkey legs, but I, I look at everyone who does. I, I always have this weird... Turkey legs. <laughs> the cheese fries. It's like... The they t- have them at Disneyland, too. And it's hard for me not... Like I've, it's hard for me not to giggle at how horrifying... And I eat meat. I don't know, probably eating meat. But, I, but there's so much like, that's how a turkey fucking walks. You're eating... The way it's, that there's like, so much, yeah, there's so much ligaments. It's too much. It's just it's so it looks, Flintstonian. Like it looks you would like Bam Bam. Yeah, you know? that's yeah. all yeah. I think of. But we just look like like fucking animals. Ah, <laughs> there's like chewing the sinew it's off not, the. Yeah. It's so not good. You must go to Ren Fair regularly, right, Chuck? You seem like a guy who probably loves the Ren Fair. Jerry's Deli is as far out as I go. <laughs> <laughs> That, there are turkey legs there as well. There's a lot of turkey legs there as well. Yeah. 
Well, it's uh, not very far from the Radford Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going very far. Nope. Cold water is too far. Cold water too far. You go a couple blocks past Laurel, but then cold water is too far. Um, well, thanks. This is amazing. Thank so you. So great. And thank you. I mean, you really are uh, such a phenomenal role model, and I, and I really you. hope that you do more public stuff. Thank so you. So that people... Well, Will is trying to be my, my best cheerleader, so he's trying to help make that happen. Excellent. Well, please let us know anytime there's anything Thank we, we you. can do, and for, and for you too as well. I mean, just, it's, you know, I don't know if people understand, it is hard enough to get a show on the air, first of all, then it is hard to keep a show on the air, then have that show be a hit, and then to do that numerous times is ridiculous. I mean, with, this business... With Emmy winners on all of your shows? Chuck? Yeah. Yeah, this business does fucking suck, and I... <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> my life in show business. Well, it just—it's just that it's uh, you know there are a lot of a lot of things happen for reasons that are not just creative reasons, and that can be very frustrating. Yeah, I, it's going to sound like so much uh, bullshit, but I I'm really grateful. I've been really lucky, so I try and stay with that. You know, I got a lot of good. Ch- I got a lot of chances. Yeah, I got a lot of swings. So, well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's good to see you both. Thank you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top, in his Cuisinart, or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free Right now on Wondery Plus.